Knoxville Game Design, March 2019, Math for Game Developers. Welcome everyone to Knoxville Game Design for March 2019. We are game developers in the Knoxville and East Tennessee area. We get together once a month to talk about our game projects and topics in the games industry. Uh, currently this month, it's just me online. Uh, I know the, uh, I think the second Sunday in March, we have the time zone change, and that kind of throws everyone for a leap. But uh, yeah, I'm Levi Smith. I'm here in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and... Uh, yeah, so I'll go over some of the news that we have this month. Uh, first of all, I wanted to mention that today is Mario Day. So I know there's a lot of cool like discounts and things going on for Mario Day 2019. Um, yeah, because if you write it out, M-A-R-10... That's the day that this is currently being recorded, March 10th, looks a lot like Mario. Go ahead and share this out just in case anybody joins while I'm talking. Share. So, first thing I want to mention, Dylan told me he wasn't going to be able to join us this month. Uh, hopefully he'll be back next month, but I know Dylan's been working on this thing called inktober march of the robots so he's been making a lot of cool like uh ink drawings uh, of different types of robots so definitely check him out dylan wolf on twitter to see all of the cool artwork that he's been doing for um the march of the robots i think he's doing one a day for every uh day in march Joe Miller, he's been working more on his 3 Tetris game, and he's been posting a lot of updates on his uh, Twitter account, Double Square Joe. You can see here he did a lot of work. It looks a lot, a lot better than uh, the compo version. He's done a lot of work on this, uh, where the box, the blocks drop down smoothly. He's updated the graphics. And, uh, yeah, overall, it just looks like it uh, plays and uh, looks a whole lot better. So hopefully Joe will put this out on um, various mobile platforms. I'm I think he usually targets Android, and he may be doing uh, iOS as well. Uh, somebody brought to my attention on the Knox Devs group. Uh, there's going to be a Unity talk in March or April actually, April 1st, almost uh, the end of March. And uh, this is going, I believe this is by Dennis Stepp, and they'll be meeting at uh, the Cedar Bluff Public Library. Uh, unfortunately, it's at 6 p.m. on a Monday night, so that's kind of hard for some of us to get out there it's, uh, right after work. But, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, if you are interested in learning more about Unity, I know Dylan did a talk on how to make a space shooter on the January 19 uh, Knox game design meeting so if you want to see somebody talk about unit talk about unity in person get some live demos this is a sounds like this will be another good resource also mentioned that b-side tickets have gone on sale 25 is the base ticket price and I think for $50 you get a cool badge 
last year they did like a little rock paper scissor uh, badge uh, where you can play a game on it or something uh, like a little breadboard type thing uh, so yeah check that out just uh, mentioning this not necessarily game dev related but it is a technical conference here in Knoxville and also Codestock is coming up I believe that's uh, April 12th through the 13th but I'm not even sure if there's tickets left for that but it is $200 so that's one of the ones more on the more expensive side and also we got Ludum Dare 44 coming up in April um, so they'll be April 26th to 29th so we'll have one more meeting before Ludum Dare 44 we currently don't have any plans for next month uh, hopefully we'll come up with something but uh, talked with Dylan and we'll, we'll just plan on the get-together at Panera Bread again the Friday uh, of the kickoff meeting so first of all I was going to show off some of the stuff that I've been working on really quickly here <clears throat> the first thing is this unity version display tool um, I don't have a screenshot I think it's somewhere on my Twitter account but yeah I've been working on this for I don't know a few months off and on and what this does it will go through all of your programs all of your unity games and yeah here it is right here it'll go through all your unity games and figure out what version of unity it was created with so it'll let you know hey you need to update this one this one's a little bit out of date um, so you can go through and like select any or all of your game projects and uh, I've been adding a lot to this so you can actually compile um, either Windows, Max, Linux or WebGL and just compile them all at one time this makes it a lot more efficient than <clears throat> going into Unity for every individual project and compiling every project by itself and switching platforms and all this and it just makes compiling so much easier and also I recently added this option to make zip files so it will go through that build folder and it will create zip files of all your projects and that's pretty helpful for when you're like uploading to game jolt because it requires zip files and, and stuff like that so that's the unity uh, tool you can find that on my Bitbucket under it's still called Unity Version Display under Unity Helper, uh, but you can find all the code. Most of the code is in like this Unity version. This is the core code that actually does the compiling and the zipping and all that. I actually had to get a gem, so you do have to have Ruby installed to use this and a couple of gems I do put documentation up here is like yeah just do gem install ruby zip to get the zipping working and then all the GUI stuff is under unity version GUI.rb um, yeah so it's just the table it's using GTK or GTK plus three uh, it's a really nice windowing tool if you're interested in doing GUIs for Ruby Another thing that I've been working on is this domino game. kind of just hadn't played dominoes in forever. I never really understood the true rules of dominoes. Uh, so I have a little like AI uh, implementation of dominoes here. So we'll just ba basically play a game by itself, red versus blue. 
Um, there, there is really isn't much AI with dominoes to begin with, but this basically just picks the first, I think it picks the first piece that's playable and it plays that piece. And I've worked on getting like how it can like turn and go different ways, but basically each of the dominoes that are laid down, you have to lay down a matching number that matches the last domino at the end. Then whoever clears their dominoes first, they win and then they get the total points of the opposing player based on how many dominoes, the values of their dominoes that are left. Um, and one other thing, one reason I really started out with this is I kind of wanted to make a falling domino simulator. <clears throat> this, this still needs some work, but I was working with forces in Unity, so I got it where like she instantiated a bunch of dominoes in a row, then I kind of got an uh, arc right here. So I got two functions, one to line up dominoes in a row and one to make dominoes go in an arc and then I just kind of have one here to link them together so yeah you can press click on that one and uh, it will use the unity physics to start knocking these dominoes over so yeah I think I got a lot, got a lot that I can do with this where we can make a whole bunch of different like patterns and maybe have a editor so people can lay out the dominoes themselves and things like that. So I thought that was pretty cool. And the next thing that I've been working on, I've updated the Earthball game. And I actually put the planets to scale now. Um, it's kind of hard placing some of the larger planets like Jupiter and Saturn, so I just kind of have these off to the side. But yeah, went in here pretty much completely uh, redeveloped all of the gameplay, uh, redid all of the physics. So it feels like a much more solid game now. Um, one other feature that I added, also added leaderboards. And this is uh, the code that I've been using. I started out from somebody else's example. But I've updated this quite a bit to work with like Unity. I think the old version was like Unity 4 or something. So I've updated it to work with Unity, uh, the latest version, Unity 2018.3, I believe. And recently I added code. So I have a Unity example. Um, so you can just pull this into your Unity project. So I got that working. Uh, made a couple of updates on how that works. I also have the MySQL code, so you just need a MySQL database on a web server, so you run that, run these SQL scripts in here, just create tables. Really not much going on there, a score table and a game table. And you got some PHP files you need to plop on your web server. Um, one thing you gotta make sure to do is there's a MySQL connect, and you'll put put in the information for your web server in here and you also got to generate a secret key that you need to put in there which, which I have just kind of start out so you just have to fill that in yourself so that key has to match the key that's actually in your game like in unity we have uh, in your assets I have uh, like scripts right here so that's got to match what's in like your high score manager script right here so you just fill this in with your website and your private key right there so that that ensures that nobody can just go in 
and start submitting scores to your leaderboard without actually playing the game that actually verifies that the score submission is coming from your game. Um, but the other thing that I did for this, I actually added code for, where is it, where is it, where is it? Leaderboard mm, code. Yeah, I did uh, support for Game Maker. And it wasn't too hard. It was just like, eh, just had to take time to sit down and figure out what it is. But this is very similar to the Unity code. Uh, you fill in the private key, you put in your web address and a game ID, and then it does the MD5 hash for you, and it builds the URL, and it submits it to your website. So I got that working for the Iro no Hoiru game, the color wheel game. So if you are developing a game maker game you want to do leaderboards, this is a good example. It's on my GitHub uh, under leaderboard example. And okay, so the main topic for this month is math for game development. So let me close out these windows here. So yeah, this is going to be kind of a long presentation. Um, let's pull up my PowerPoint slides here. Okay, math for game developers. So what this is going to be, this is going to be like math that I learned throughout all the way from elementary school, all the way through college, and like 16 years or so of math. I'm going to condense down into one presentation. I'm going to go over some algebra, like basically starting with arithmetic. Algebra, geometry, trigonometry, calculus, and then a little bit of physics. Um, I'm going to skip the shortcuts. I mean, there's some processes where you can calculate things a long, drawn-out way. I'll just show you the shortcuts. Um, the other reason for doing this is, like, some of this stuff I wasn't exposed to until I got to college. And if I just would have known, uh, just been exposed to some of these concepts before, I think it, it would have given me a little bit of a, a head start. So, now, this isn't intended to be a full inblown like math lesson or anything like that I'm just going to basically expose some of these concepts and give a few examples and show how uh, these concepts are related to game design so if you are in school listening to this or in college and we're like oh why are we doing this and that I'll never use that well I'll actually tell you how some of that is actually used in game development and uh, I'll also tell you the things that I don't think are very useful at all they're cool concepts but things that I've never actually used in game development Okay, so I have a couple of demos too. Actually, I've just finished some GameMaker demos as well. So I have Unity and GameMaker demos. So the first thing, we'll start out simple. Some basic arithmetic. We'll jump into division. 
so whenever you divide two numbers, two whole numbers, you'll get the first number, the, what is it, the divisor, how many times that goes into the other number. But then you always have these remainders and how you handle the remainders in game design. You can do it various ways. So in game design, uh, a concept I use frequent, frequently is called modulo or the modulus. And that is basically the remainder. So if you have 11 and you divide by 4, then, well, then 4 goes into 11 two times, like 4 times 2 is 8, but then you have 3 left over. So modulo will actually give you that 3. Um, so whenever you're trying to go from a 1D to a 2D array, like if I have a 1D array with a bunch of random numbers and I want to fill uh, a 2D array with those random numbers, I quite frequently use this mod modulo command. And you, you'll see this two different ways. In GameMaker, they actually write MOD, um, or you can use the percent sign. That's commonly how you see it in most programming languages is the little percent sign. So that goes between the two numbers that, that you're dividing. Uh, yeah, so it's helpful in filling in a 2D array and also um, the modulus, uh, the remainder, is good for finding the column in your 2D array. So uh, I'll show you some examples here. Like if you're doing a Tetris game, I think I have that on the next slide, but the mod, modulo, will give you what column that entry appears in. Uh, another good use for modulo is if you have an object and you've ro rotated it a bunch of times, then you can take mod 360 because there's 360 degrees in a circle or an object can rotate 360 degrees. Um, if you take mod 360, then that will give you a number between 0 and 360. So if something is rotated multiple times, and then that will get rid of, and they'll turn that really big number into a small number between 0 and 360. And division works different ways in game programming. Uh, typically, it returns a whole number depending on the language and depending on whether you're using a typed language or not. Uh, when you use division, it's really good. Like I was saying, modulo is good for finding the column. Division is good for finding the row. So that will tell you what row you're on going from a 1D to a 2D array. Um, if you're working with floats in a typed language, then it typically does return a number with a floating point decimal. Um, but there's different ways you can get rid of that. You can either, like in this example, the first example that I have over here to the right is GameMaker. The second example down here is Unity. So if you want to convert two floats to an int and get rid of the remainder, then you can cast it as an int. And I think there's also a, like a math f, uh, like convert, or I think it's div or something where you can convert it to an int um, as well. Um, so you'll see here in GameMaker, if you do 11 divided by 4, then you get 2.75. You get that remainder right there. If you do 11 and actually type out div4, then you'll get the whole number, you'll get two. So if you use slash, you get the remainder. If you use div, then you get the whole number. 
Um, and that, of course I mentioned the percent or mod, you can type either the percent sign or MOD, and that will both give you three. I don't know if there's any difference in Game Maker between these two. Uh, but in Unity, if you do 11 by 4 and they're both ints, you'll get 2. If you do the mod sign, you'll get 3. Um, if you do two floats and you divide, uh, then you'll also get 2. If you don't specify that those uh, numbers are floats, and you do that by adding an F after the number, like right down here. So you do 11F slash 4F, and that will give you 2.75. Okay, and typically dividing by zero is a bad thing to do, so don't do that. Uh, here I was talking about Tetris a little bit, so this is how you can like convert, especially if you're laying out like a 1D array into a 2D uh, uh, table, then you can use uh, the array row that will give you your Y position. And then uh, the second value, the column, will give you your X position. But you actually have to multiply it by the cell width and cell height. Typically in a game like uh, Tetris, you're using squares, so the cell width and the cell heights are going to be the same. you got to watch out based on what language you're using. In Unity, Y goes upward on the screen and Game Maker goes downward on the screen. So if you're starting out and you want to go from the bottom up, then you have to subtract the total height of your array, like how many rows, you gotta multiply the number of rows times the cell height. So you gotta subtract that off to move uh, that zero row to the bottom and then work upward. And also in 3D games, uh, there's this, a, a trick in 3D games, a lot of graphics software use a Z-up coordinate system. So if you want to change Z-up to Y-up, because that's what Unity uses, then you got to multiply that by a negative 90 degrees or 270 degrees, which is the same thing. Okay, so let's get into a little bit of geometry and algebra. Uh, one very important concept is the Pythagorean Theorem. Uh, this was uh, founded by a guy, guy named Pythagoras of Samos between 570 BC and 495 BC. Just know this was like discovered a really, really long time ago. So this has been around for quite a while. So the basic concept of Pythagorean theorem is a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And what that is useful for is finding the difference between two different points. So if you're going to use this, it's got to be a right angle. And what a right angle is, is a, is a triangle with one 90 degree angle. It basically has two lines or vectors which are perpendicular to each other. And one piece of trivia, the sum of the angles in a triangle is 180 degrees if you're trying to figure out the remaining angle of a triangle. So one reason why this is important uh, a lot of us, we start out trying to make a game like Zelda, like a Zelda clone. And typically what we start out doing is, like, if you press the right arrow key, then you're going to move a constant speed in the X direction. If you press the left arrow key, you're going to move a constant speed in the left. Yeah. If you press the up key, you're going to move a constant speed upward. And if you press the down arrow key, then you're going to move a constant speed downward. So where the problem comes in is when you're pressing right and up 
at the same time. So what's going to happen is, is you're going to move your constant, and in this example I use one. Let's say we move one pixel a second or one pixel per time for unit uh, to the right. And then we also move one up at the same time. Well, you probably don't think about it, but you're actually moving a lot faster when you go diagonally. And that's because of the Pythagorean theorem. So the player will actually move 1.4142 times or 41% faster in the diagonal direction uh, if they're holding both two movement keys, like one movement key in the vertical direction and one movement key in the horizontal direction at the same time. And that's because of the Pythagorean theorem. So basically what's happening is you have one unit in the x direction so that's your a a value so one squared is one and then you're moving one unit in the y direction and that's going to be your b value for so one is squared so you do one squared plus one squared which is one plus one which will be two equals c squared and what that c value is is your hypotenuse and the hypotenuse is that other angle the angle that diagonal angle right there in a right triangle so to get c squared to be c you take the square root of a squared plus b squared so that's going to be the square root of two because one plus one is two and the square root of two is 1.41 so that's how you get the 40 percent faster uh, moving both of those at the same time. So I'll talk a little bit later about how some ways to resolve that. And another good use of the Pythagorean theorem, I uh, should have done shift F5, is if you just need to know the distance between two objects. You know the x and y coordinate of one object, like the player, and you know the x and y coordinate of another object, such as an enemy, then you basically take the difference between the x, x values of those two objects, you square that, then you add the difference between the y values of those two objects, you square that, add those together, and take the square root. So that's basically Pythagorean theorem, uh, a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And another good use of this is if you want to do some like quick and dirty collision detection if you just want to know how far away something is and you're not worried about bounding boxes or anything like that the example that i have here is like the original metal gear for the nes you got this guy he fell asleep and you just need to know say if you're within two units of this guy then well the pythagorean theorem is going to be probably your best bet to find the distance between those two uh, characters and so like say if it gets within a certain number of units if you get between within two units or something then the guy's gonna wake up and then he's going to attack you another piece of trivia trivia that you'll probably learn in math class is that if you're taking the square root and your calculator doesn't have a square root button but it does have an exponent button the square root of a number is the same as raising that number to the one-half power or that number to 0.5. So basically you're taking, uh, this works for like cube roots and things like that. You just basically do one over than whatever root you're trying to take. And I also mentioned that uh, this is also helpful when you're trying to uh, find the distance or like determine if a bullet 
has hit the player or hit an enemy, then, yeah, a lot of times you just need to know the distance because you're not really concerned about the bounding box of a little tiny bullet. And so in Unity, the quick and dirty way to do this, that there is a vector3.distance function. You just basically pass in two vector3s, and that will tell you the distance for you. That will calculate uh, uh, the hypotenuse for you. Also in GameMaker, they have a point underscore distance function. Then you pass in the two, the x and y value of the first object, then the x and y of the second object, and that will return the distance between those two things. So the next thing I want to talk about is exponents, which are good to know. It's very important to learn like the powers of two. I've listed like some mnemonic devices here, but basically we're talking about 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, all the way up to 65,536. So basically what an exponent is, is a number multiplied by itself a certain number of times, such as 2 to the power of 5 is 32. Uh, one thing to remember is anything to the power of zero is always defined to be one. So my little mnemonics here, like two to the zero is one, like the Xbox one. Two to the first is two, like Super Mario two. Two to the, to the second is four. And I'll also mention a lot of the older video game consoles. Uh, a lot of the names of those older consoles were named after these powers of two. Usually it has something to do with the bus size or how much memory it can hold, which is typically uh, based on a power two because of the binary nature of numbers. So we got two to the third is eight. So I kind of think of like an eight-bit NES, Super Nintendo, or regular Nintendo. 2 to the 4th is 16, like the TurboGrafx-16 or the 16-bit Super Nintendo. 2 to the 5th is 32, like the Sega 32X add-on. 2 to the 6th is 64, like the Nintendo 64. Um, 2 to the 7th, uh, I always remember there's 128 characters in the base ASCII character set. Uh, for like old computers. So that's 2 to the 7th is 128. And 2 to the 8th, you'll see this one quite a bit. Uh, it's 256. Like when you're, when you're picking color value codes, then typically you'll have a range from 0 to 255 or 1 to 256. One other one that's probably important to remember is 2 to the 16th. The first time I was exposed to 2 to the 16th was in Dragon Warrior for the NES, uh, I always remember that the gold and experience values that you can uh, acquire was always capped at 65535. And I always thought that was very peculiar. Or peculiar. Like, why was it capped at this like, just like random value? Well, later on, I found that it was because that's 2 to the 16th. And that's probably about the maximum that uh, two units of memory could hold uh, for the NES. And so I'll talk a little bit about base conversions. So basically, to convert a number to binary, what we're going to do is take those exponents that I just talked about, those powers of 2, and we're going to divide the number in base 10. Like the numbers that we currently talk about as numbers, uh, it's base 10. It's probably based on because we have 
10 fingers and 10 toes. I don't know. That's probably, they probably came up with that a long, long time ago. Uh, but to convert that number to binary, basically we're going to go through each of those exponents of 2, powers of 2, and keep dividing by the largest one and keep going down. And based on that uh, exponent value, it will either assign that like slot a 1 or a 0. So to convert 42 to binary, we're going to look at 2 to the 5th, and we can divide 42 by uh, 32. 32 will go into 42 one time so we'll put down a one and then we have ten left over so then we're going to look at two to the fourth which is sixteen so will sixteen divide into ten no it won't so we're going to put a zero so then we're going to look at two to the third and that's eight so will eight divide into ten yes it will so now we're going to put a one one we're working left to right so then we have two left over so will two to the second divide into uh, 2? No, it won't. So we're going to put a 0. So then we'll look at 2 to the first. Will 2 to the first, which is 2, will that divide into 2? Yes, it will. So we'll put a 1 there. And now we have 0 left over. So um, 2 to the 0, remember that's a special case. That's a 1. So will 1 divide into 0? No, it won't. So that we'll put a 0 there. So then we know that 42 in binary is 1, 0, 1, 0, 1, 0. Uh, converting from other uh, bases is kind of similar. Uh, base 16 is called hexadecimal. You'll probably see that, especially if we get into lower level programming, assembly, and things like that. The problem with base 16 is there's more digits. There's 16 digits, but we only know of 10 digits in our standard counting system. We have 0 through 9. And a digit is just like one position in a number. So we have to give additional characters to these higher level digits. So 10 is an A, 11 is a B, 12 is a C, 13 is D, E is 14, and F is 15. You'll probably see F quite a bit, uh, like 255 is FF. So we kind of do the same thing. So let's take our 42 again, and we want to see if 2 to the 16 to the first we'll divide into it uh, or, well, first we'll check and see if 16 to the first will divide into 42 yes it will it will divide into it twice 32 so what we do is since it divides into twice we'll write down a 2 and then we take the remainder which is 10 and then we see if 16 to the 0 which is 16 uh, will that Will that divide into uh, 10? No, it won't. But we take the leftover, which is 10, which equals A. So 42 in hexadecimal is 2A. Uh, but typically you'll see this written as 0x. Any number in hexadecimal you'll see a 0x2A. That's how we write that. And also a lot of times you'll see 0x80, which equals 128. Uh, that's basically half of 256. So you'll sometimes see that kind of frequently in numbers. Um, why is all this important? Well, in binary, you can use uh, bit shifts. You'll see that sometimes in lower low programming language. It's important to know about these exponents because of overflow. 
if you know the size of your uh, data type, such as an integer, which can be different on different systems, then once you get up to a certain value, based on whether it's signed or unsigned, that value can roll over. So once you get a really big number, it can roll over and be a really small number or even a negative number. Um, yeah, and also like if you're doing so, stuff like chmod in Unix, it's, uh, that's a way that you can enter like permission codes like chmod 400. Uh, if you know the uh, exponents and the binary values and you can like actually set file permissions based on those numbers. Hexadecimal is good to know if you're doing web programming. A lot of times you'll see color codes written, the RGB. You'll see those written in hexadecimal. So it's good to know that like FF0000 is red or 00FF00 is green. And I said earlier assembly. So now I'm going to talk a little bit about a little bit more geometry and uh, a little bit of trigonometry. So everybody's heard of pi. It's represented by this little symbol right here. It's 3.14159 repeating. I'll just go ahead and say there's no point in memorizing pi to 100 spaces. I mean, other than to sound nerdy or try to sound cool. Um, uh, you can always find it as a calculated value. You can actually calculate pi yourself. Uh, you start out with like a, uh, a square and you keep adding sides. So you go to a pentagon and go to an octagon. Then you just keep taking the radius. And the radius is the distance between the center of the object to one of its sides. So as you keep increasing the number of sides to your object, uh, of your shape, it will it will start looking more and more like a circle. So you just basically take that out to infinity, then you get the value of pi. And what the value of pi tells you is the circumference around the circle uh, or the area inside of the circle. Basically, the how far it is around that circle. Um, another important thing to uh, know about is radians and degrees. As I mentioned earlier, there's 360 degrees in a circle, and there's an equivalent to that called radians. So half the way around the circle is pi radians. Uh, a quarter of the way around is 90 degrees or pi over 2 radians. <clears throat> Three quarters of the way around is 270 degrees or 3 over 2 pi radians or all the way around the circle is 2 pi radians which is like 6.28 2, 2 times pi. So what you want to do to convert a degree value, say you have 42 degrees and you want to convert that to radians, basically what you do is you take the source units, which is um, degrees, and that, that's 42. So you want to divide by a constant. So the constant that we're going to use is pi, which is your value in radians, which is 3.14, and divide that by the equivalent in degrees, which is 180. Then multiply that by the value that you want to find the uh, conversion value of. So <clears throat> we take 3.14, divide it by 180, multiply it by our 42 degrees, then we get 0 0.73, 0 .7, yeah, 0 0.73, which is 42 degrees in radians. 
Now to go from radians back to degrees, we do the same thing except that we multiply by 180 and divide by 3.14. <clears throat> and whether you use degrees or uh, radians is really dependent on the language and also the function that you're using. Some uh, ask you to use degrees and some ask you to use radians. So it's always good to consult the documentation to find out um, what value you need to pass in either degrees or radians. <clears throat> so getting into a little bit of trigonometry here, one important thing is sine and cosine waves. Um, always remember the difference between sine and cosine is that sine always starts at a y value of zero and cosine always starts at a uh, y value of one. And basically they're the same wave and they'll basically repeat after you get to 2 pi radians. Um, on a circle, sine gives you the y co coordinate of an angle and cosine will give you the x value of an uh, angle. And I'll t talk a little bit in a minute about why this is important. <clears throat> and in a sine, I'll show a, a diagram here in a second, there's different parts of the sine wave, which are called amplitude, period, and frequency. Yeah, I have it right here. <clears throat> so the amplitude is how high up, like the peak, the top of the wave is, or from the zero baseline, or the value from that baseline down, I think it's called the trough, is the bottom of the wave. So that's your amplitude. And then the frequency is how many peaks you find in a set uh, unit, typically 2 pi. Um, also, you use that to determine the period. The period equals 1 over frequency. And another important use of sine and cosine is finding, like I was talking about earlier, the uh, Pythagorean theorem. Well, you can actually use sine and cosine to find the angle in a right triangle. Um, and the, the mnemonic that a lot of us learn in high school is called SOHCAHTOA, S-O-H, which means sine equals the opposite over hypotenuse, CA, C-A-H, cosine equals the adjacent side over the hypotenuse and <clears throat> toa uh, which is the tangent and yeah we really won't be using tangent I really don't use tangent much in game development but that is the opposite side over the adjacent side and I'll talk a little bit in a minute about what that means <laughs> so the first time I was really saw sine and cosine in a video game was uh, Metroid. There was like the wave beam, so it kind of started out, and I kind of just like extrapolated the points right here. Uh, I can't remember if this is exactly how it goes, but it does go sort of in a sine wave. It goes on a curve up, and then it comes back down. So you can achieve that effect using a sine or a cosine wave. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, once you start at zero y value, then once you get up to 90 degrees or pi over 2 radians, then it goes up to 1. Then once you get to 180 or pi radians, it goes to 0. Then once you get to 270 degrees or 3 pi over 2 radians, it drops down to negative 1. Then once you get 
to 360 degrees or two pi radians and it comes back to zero and then it just keeps repeating <clears throat> so there's a couple of uh, different ways to calculate this and I have a couple of demos right here one is in unity so I can show how uh, a sine wave works in unity so I'm going to open scene and I think I have it under my recent projects uh, open projects um, presentations and math for game dev unity demos math for game dev open this up open open uh, I guess I gotta go open a scene sine waves open oh that's interesting oh unity just crashed oh it looks like it's restarting now um, yeah, so I have a couple of demos here. I'll show how this actually, oh, here it comes, how it works in Unity. Let me maximize that. So basically, I have a starting point right here, which is the square. And I'll make sure to put all of these demos out online so people can check them out. And I have two sliders up here. So the first slider will let me change the amplitude. Currently we have an amplitude of one. So you'll see when this wave goes up and down, it never will go one unit higher or one unit lower than the baseline. Go back here. So if I move my slider up and move this to 2, the next time it emits uh, a particle, a sine wave right here, then it's going to go up 2 units, then go down like 40 units to the negative 2, then back up to a positive 2. And I got it where you can move it all the way up to 5. So you can see as you increase the amplitude, then you're going to get these wide ranging movements right here. So actually the particle is moving faster as you increase amplitude uh, in the overall direction, but you'll see that the x velocity, the amount that it moves in the x direction, always remains the same no matter how, how big the amplitude is. It still moves uh, in the same amount along the x direction. You can also like turn the amplitude all the way down to zero and that will basically give you a straight line. It just stays on zero and never goes up. Or you can go up to 0.5 and that will go, they'll give you kind of like a long, slow wave like that. We can turn this back up to one. And you can also change your frequency. So if you decrease your frequency, like down to 0.5, then you're also going to get these long, slow waves. So now it's going to take four pi radians to make one complete movement through the wave. If we move this up to two, then it's going to go, I guess this is like an oscillation, like one complete movement. Then it's going to go two, you're going to see two peaks and two troughs in, uh, in two pi in 6.28 radians. Or, uh, what is that, 720 degrees? We can turn this all the way up to four, so that's going to make it 
like go up and down really fast like that so it's kind of a neat tool to play with all the source codes in there if you want to check that out and also I have an equivalent in game maker let me bring game maker up right here and press play so it's kind of the same thing I didn't have a trail render in game maker so I just use this particle emitter so here's the same thing we have an amplitude of one and a frequency of one but I can increase the amplitude say to three and we're going to get this effect where it goes up three units then goes down to negative three and back up to a positive three or we can move it up to five so it'll go up five units and down to negative five units and let's move and I'm changing all these with the WS and A and D keys we can also increase the frequency say to four so we're going to get like the the faster movements we're going to see more peaks and more cross uh, in the same amount of time or we can turn the frequency down to 0.5 so you're going to get these nice long and slow uh, oscillations here so this is really good if you want to like like make your game look a little bit more interesting you don't want to use like straight shots and things like that all the time you can like kind of make a wave beam or make your enemies go in a wave pattern by modifying these amplitude and frequency values so I have the code right here I'll, like I said I'll put all the code out online but here in the presentation just a quick example right here we have the lifetime of the object in unity which is time delta time times speed so to find out the new position in the sine wave we're basically going to make a new vector and the position is going the x like I said earlier the x position is going to stay constant so that's just going to be your lifetime value then the sine the y value is going to be your amplitude times mathf.sign and then sign you're going to pass in the lifetime value times the frequency um, so yeah just remember the frequency goes into the sine function and then the amplitude is multiplied times your sine function and game maker is similar we got a lifetime right here um, I had to like modify the units because going one pixel at a time is going to go very slowly so I had to define this unit constant <clears throat> to make that 64 pixels per, per second so again for the x value we're just going to take the position of the spawner and add the lifetime for the y value we're going to do the sine and again we'll do the lifetime times the frequency then we'll divide by the number of units because again sine except, expects the value um, between 0 and 1 or between 0 and 2 pi I believe and then we're going to multiply that by the amplitude so it's the same concept then we're going to add like the the position of the spawner and also you got to got to remember to multiply this by negative 1 because game maker does use the uh, y downward as y is go as y is getting positive you're going down the screen so you got to flip it upside down so that's why you got to multiply by negative one <clears throat> so the next thing I'll talk about is circles 
And the circle is basically defined by the center point and the radius. I talked about the radius a little bit earlier. It's the distance from the center to the circle. And if you want to do a spiral, I don't have a spiral example, but a spiral is basically a uh, circle with a constantly increasing or decreasing <coughs> radius. So you can make some cool effects like that. As I mentioned earlier, circumference is 2 pi r, and area is pi r squared. I never really used an area. I don't think I've used circumference either. But the first time I saw this was in the original Legend of Zelda in the last dungeon. You got Patra, and he's got these little mini Patras that circle around him at a constant rate. I, thought, I always thought that was a cool effect, and I think it's cool that I actually know how that was uh, implemented now. Kind of did something like this in one of my games. So we got the degrees and radians of a circle. So kind of like a sine wave, it starts out as zero or zero radians, and then it goes upward, up and to the left, to 90 degrees or probably over two radians, which has a x value of zero and a y value of one. Then it comes back down, kind of going counterclockwise. So that's kind of like at 90 degrees, you're at 12 o'clock. At 180 degrees or pi radians, you're at nine o'clock. So you keep going counterclockwise. 270 or 3 pi over 2 radians <clears throat> is 6 o'clock. And then you go back up to 360 degrees or 0 degrees, same thing. Or 2 pi radians or 0 radians, that's also the same thing. You'll be at 3 o'clock and uh, that's your circle there. So you can make some cool effects like I always think of uh, the boo circles in Super Mario World you can use that to make your your characters go around in a circle like that so I got a couple of examples of circles so first I'll do unity so I got the circle scene right here So I built the little app. It starts out in spawn a projectile. It's going to start out with a radius of 1, and it's going to increment by 0.5 pi radians every second. So it's going to go 90 degrees, or it's going to go from like 3 o'clock to 12 o'clock counterclockwise every second. Can increase the radius to say 2, spawn another projectile, and you'll see that this never does get further than two units away from the center of the square. Let's pull this up to three and let's say we want to increment by one pi units every second. So I'm going to spawn. So this one looks like it's going a lot faster. It's kind of like planets spinning around the Sun. So this one is going to go uh, pi radians or 180 degrees every second so it's going to look like it's going a lot faster let's pull this out to four radius and let's say let's make this negative 0.5 radians increment spawn that so this one we'll see it's going in the opposite direction and it's going to go uh, let's see here it's going to go think one pi every two seconds or 90 degrees pi over two every second so it's kind of fun to play with uh, if you just want to learn more about radius and increments and things like that and how things can 
rotate around. Oh, and of course, if you have a zero increment, then you're just going to get a projectile that doesn't move at all. <laughs> this kind of sticks there. So I have an equivalent in Game Maker. And so let me press start here. And just press space and it'll take you to the next one. So basically I start out with a radius of one. So you can see it's going to spawn one every five seconds. It's going to like just rotate one uh, unit away. And it's going to move at one pi radians every second. So let's increase the radius to three. So it's still going to move at one pi radians every second. But it's going to go... It's going to stay, so it will always stay three units away from the center. Now I think I press escape to delete those. So let's say we want to go move speed 0.2 radians per second or negative 0.20. Then it's going to go a lot slower and we can all go all the way down to like negative 2 pi. So that's going to go, so as you're moving in the negative radians or negative degrees, you're going to go clockwise. So that's something important to remember is if you want to go clockwise, you go in negative degrees or negative radians. If you want to go counterclockwise, then go in positive degrees or positive radians. And basically, the distance from the center, you change that by changing the radius value. So I just took a snippet of the code um, out of there, the important part. So as the lifetime increases, then in Unity, what we're going to do is we're going to do transform position. And we're assuming that physics isn't important here. Uh, we're going to set the new position to a new vector 3. And the new vector 3 values, the x value is going to be the center value, the center uh, that you're orbiting around. Then we're going to add the radius times math f dot cosine and then the lifetime value for the y value we're going to make uh, set it to the center location the y value plus the radius times math f dot sine lifetime so it's pretty simple there so for game maker what we do is like we'll also have a lifetime increase that as as uh, as the object moves along and then the X position is going to be the the same the center of the object uh, so I have an object circle spawner right here so I take its X value I add the radius times and I have that unit conversion right here because if we're only doing one pixel or four pixels and you're not going to be able to see that rotation so I multiply by this unit value which is 64 pixels then multiply that by the cosine of the lifetime and to get the y position I take the y position of the spawner and add to it the radius times that unit conversion times the sine of the lifetime but we also got to multiply by negative one because remember game maker as y goes up screen position goes down. So you always got to remember to multiply by negative one there. So I'm going to hit up some more of these uh, concepts pretty quickly here. 
Uh, there's a concept called nor normalization of a vector. And what that's good for is if you're moving an object along, say you know the, you know the source location, you know the destination, and you want to move this object to its destination at a constant rate. Well, to figure out what that rate is, you got to normalize that vector from the source to the destination. And that normalized vector always has a uh, length of 1. And yeah, as I just mentioned, you can uh, multiply that by the speed of your object to get the new position. So let's say we have like a airplane, and I got a little diagram right here, and it's starting at zero zero. And this is kind of like the what is it, the Cartesian coordinate plane. You got your x and y, or you got your y going vertically, and you got your x going perpendicular horizontally. So let's say we start at, at zero, zero. And our destination location, where we want to move this object, whether it's a plane or an enemy or whatever, we want to move it to the right two units, and we want to move it up five units. <clears throat> so the slope of that line, which is kind of unrelated, but it's just a nice piece of trivia, is five over two. It's rise over run. You'll probably learn that in, like, uh, geometry class. And that's useful if you're doing this thing called the y equals mx plus b form, which I won't go into that, but basically uh, is a form for defining the line by its slope and its y-intercept. <clears throat> so what we need to do, like I was talking about earlier in the presentation, is find the hypotenuse. And it's pretty easy to find right here because <clears throat> using the x x vector and the y vector, that makes a right triangle. <clears throat> and usually these right triangles are uh, signified by putting a little square where that 90 degree angle is. So to normalize this vector, what we're going to do is take the two sides. So one side is 2. We're going to square that. That's your a squared. Take your y value, which is 5, we're going to square that, 25, so we're going to add 4 and 25 and take the square root of that, which is, you need a calculator to do it, probably, that's 5.3852. So that's the dis total distance from the source to the origin, is 5.382. So the normalized vector, you just take your x component which is 2, divide that by 5.3852, and that'll give you 0 0.3714, and take your y component, which is 5, divide that by that hypotenuse, 5.3852, that'll give you 9 point, or no, that'll give you 0.9285, and that's your normalized vector, is x, 0.3714, y, 0.9285. Now here's a little bit of trivia that you really don't need to know to find the normalized vector. But to find the degrees, and this can be helpful in like if you want to rotate your character toward the ending positions, or I guess this is useful, uh, you need to find out how many degrees it is right here in this uh, angle right here. And that's re represented by this Greek symbol called theta. Kind of looks like a zero with a line going through the center of it. So to find theta, to find that angle, what we want to do, and this is uh, part of SOHCAHTOA, S-O-H, 
the sine of that angle equals the opposite, the opposite side. So I got them listed here. Here's hypotenuse H. That's your total distance. A is the distance in your x direction because that's adjacent. Adjacent means that's the side that's touching your angle that you want to find. Then opposite is the side that's not touching your angle. So O over H equals the sine of your value, the sine of your angle. So opposite is 5.3852 and adjacent is 5, or no, opposite is 5. So now we have your angle equals uh, this, uh, well, so to find this value of theta, what you got to do is to find that value in sine of x, you got to use something called the arc sine. So your angle is going to equal arc sine of opposite over hypotenuse. So arc sine of 5 over 5.382 equals arc sine of 0.9285, which is 68 degrees. Now you probably won't see arc sine on your standard TI-85 calculator. It's usually listed as sine with a little negative 1 on top. That's the same as the arc sign. So remember, if you're trying to find the angle, use arc sign or sign with a little negative one over the top. And we can verify that this is the normalized vector using Pythagorean theorem. So we take the x vector, we square that, plus the y vector, square that, take the square root, and it equals 1.0000. And we can also use that, so if we're moving our jet or whatever object we want from the source position to the destination, then say in Unity, what we want to do is we take the X component, multiply that by how fast the object is moving. I just use an example here of 0.4 units and multiply that by time delta time. And in the Y direction, we take the Y component, multiply that by point forward, then multiply that by time delta time, and then we use transform translate to move that along both of those uh, axes right there. So that will ensure that your object will move at a constant rate to its destination, will move at point forward units uh, to its destination. In GameMaker, we'll do this in a step method. We'll make the x value x plus then the x component of your normalized vector times the vector speed or your object speed divided by room speed and y will be your y value plus the watt normalized y value times the speed divided by room speed and what's cool about this is that based on this you can actually determine how long it's going to take to get there so you know your distance is 5.3852, which is what we found using the Pythagorean theorem, the hypotenuse, and divide that by the speed. In this example, we're doing 0.4. So you divide those two values, and you can calculate that it's going to take 13.463 seconds to get there. Uh, one useful lesson that I learned all throughout school is, especially once you get into physics, is as long as you keep your units straight, 
you, it's, it's pretty easy to find the right answer. So your distance may be like in meters, your speed is in time. So if we know the distance is meters and we want to figure out how long it's going to take and we know the speed, speed is distance divided by time. Then to uh, get the time, we basically just flip the speed so we get seconds over distance. So the two distances are going to cancel out, which leaves you with seconds. Um, I know that's a lot, but yeah, if you just remember, if you keep the units straight, then it's pretty, uh, e pretty easy to get the right answer. Just briefly talk about matrix multiplication. So matrices are basically these, uh, basically just like an array. There's two different ways you can multiply matrices. One is the dot product, and another is called cross product. Dot product, I really haven't used that much. Cross product's used quite a bit. It's used to find something called the determinant. It's also used to find the normal between two vectors. So if you got uh, a 2D, 2x2 uh, two two matrix, and you multiply that by a, uh, a point, just an X and a Y value, uh, we're going to list the X and Y, X over Y in a matrix. We're going to do AX. So we're going to go AX plus BY. So you're basically turning this matrix 90 degrees. So you take the first, first uh, row in the first column and multiply that by the uh, first row, full, first column in your target point. And you add to that the value that's in the first row and second column times the second row first column and your point and that'll be your resulting you add those two together that will be your resulting first row first column in the answer so it's basically ax plus uh, by and then you take the value that's in the second row first column multiply that by the first row first column and add to that the second row, second column times the second row, first column. That'll give you your second row, first column in your answer. Uh, yeah, I definitely recommend checking out, if you're listening to the audio, checking out the video of this because I have this all written out right here for you to see. 3D multiplication, uh, matrix multiplication, it's kind of the same. Uh, I recommend looking at this right here, but basically we're taking each of the values in the row, multiplying those by in the first matrix, and multiplying those by each of the values in the column in the second matrix. That's the, probably the easiest way to put that. Why is this important? Well, when you get into 3D programming, there's all of these transformation matrices. The first one that you'll probably be introduced to is the identity matrix. So basically, it's all zeros. It's a three, day, three by three matrix with all zeros, but with ones going down the uh, from top from top left to top bottom down the diagonal. So anything multiplied by this identity matrix will give you itself. There's a translation matrix, which is basically the identity matrix, but with an x and a y value in the far right column. Uh, that will translate your point, your vertex, in 3D space, that many positions in the X and Y. The rotation matrix, It's uh, this is one that you'll probably be quizzed on if you get into, uh, into computer graphics. Uh, it's basically, in the upper left, you have cosine, 
then upper right sine, then in lower left you have negative sine, and lower right you have cosine. So multiplying an object by this will give you that point rotated that many degrees or radians. Um, I can't remember, if, I think this is rotation around X, I believe, to get the X axis to either get Y or Z, you kind of move these values down in this matrix right here. And scaling is pretty simple. Basically, instead of having a one in the upper left-hand corner, you have the width that you want to scale. Um, in the center, instead of a one, you have the height. So that will make your object bigger or smaller. So I'll also talk about cross products. I talked about that a little bit here. One thing I just want to make clear is the normal vector is not the same thing as normalizing a vector. Normalize means to take a vector and convert it into unit length. A normal vector is the vector that's perpendicular to a polygon. And this is important for graphics such as shading and culling to determine which side of that polygon is going to show up when you're rendering it. Um, if you're using a program like Unity, usually you don't have to worry about this if you're doing Blender. But I will say in Blender it is important, like sometimes when you're modeling an object and all of a sudden part of the object's missing, but if you turn around a little bit then you start seeing those empty spots again. That's because your normals are backwards. And you can go into Blender and typically flip your normals if you need to. Um, or recalculate all normals. Usually it does a pretty good job of determining uh, where those uh, normals the right way they should be. <clears throat> the determinant, which is the cross product again, or uh, yeah, it, it's the angle between two vectors. Basically you take a 3D, uh, a 3x3 three three matrix, and you put X, Y, and Z at the top, and you put your first vector in the first row and second vector in the second row, which I'll show here in a second. That will determine the perpendicular vector, the normal there. Uh, so normal is pretty easy to calculate for a 2x2 two two matrix. Basically, if you got A in the upper left, B in the upper right, C in the lower left, and D in the lower right, <coughs> then you'd basically do A times Z, A times D. You do it crossways, a downward diagonal, multiply those two together, and then you subtract B times C, which is another diagonal going the other way. So in th this example I have in the first row 3, 4, second row 5, negative 1. So basically we're going to do 3 times negative 1 minus 4 times 5. So that's going to give us negative 3 minus 20, which equals negative 23, which is the determinant of this 2x2 two 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 matrix. <clears throat> For a 3D determinant uh, or cross product between two vectors, basically, like I said, we're going to put in this example, we have two vectors. First one is 3, 5, and negative 2. The second one is 4, negative 1, and 2. So in the first row, we're just going to write x, y, and z. I've seen other people use i, j, and k. So then in the second row, we're going to put 3, 5, 2, which is 3 is x, 5 is y, negative 2 is z. And then in the third in the third row, we're going to put four, oops, minus one and two. 
So the quick and dirty way, there's like a long drawn out method for determining, determining the determinant, <laughs> uh, or the cross product, for determining this value, which I'm not going to get into. The quick and dirty way is to take the first column, or x34, and write it next to this 3 by 3 matrix as a column. Then we're going to take the second column and write it next to that one as well, right outside the matrix. So then we're going to draw three diagonals going from upper left to lower right, going forward that way. Then we're going to draw three lines going backwards, uh, going from upper right to lower left. So what we'll do is we'll just, for each of the, line, the diagonals that are going forward, we're going to multiply those values together. So the first one is x times 5 times 2. The second one is y times negative 2 times 4. And the third one is z times 3 times negative 1. So that gives us 10x minus 8y minus 3z. So that's just for the ones that are going forward. So then we're going to subtract off the diagonals that are going backwards. So we're going to subtract off, and I'm going to start off with x right here just to keep things straight. We're going to do x times minus 2 times minus 1, which is 2x. y is y times 3 times 2, which is 6y. And z is z times 5 times 4, which is 20z. So we're going to subtract that off. So you subtract those and you get 8x minus 2y plus 17z, which is the cross product of those two vectors. You may want to check my math there. I did that quickly and didn't double check it. Okay, so now I just want to get into a little bit of calculus. So basically a derivative, uh, you'll, you'll hear a lot about derivatives in calculus. Uh, the one thing you typically use it for is to find the slope of a curve at a certain point. Uh, there's two different notations for derivatives. One's called the Leibniz. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but you'll see it as d over dx. Uh, then there's also Lagrange notation, also called the prime notation, which is f. Then like a little apostrophe, prime symbol, then x within the function. I think that's one thing that always confused me about derivatives is there's two different notations. If they just had one notation it probably, probably wouldn't be as, as confusing. <clears throat> so I'll tell you the quick and dirty way to take a derivative and you can use this all throughout calculus. Probably when you start taking calculus, if you do take calculus, they're going to give you this long drawn out way of calculating a derivative by using limits and calculating and finding the asymptote, uh, asymptote and all that good stuff. Here's a quick and dirty way to take a derivative. You take the exponent, so you'll have a, here's an example. Uh, we have 4x cubed plus, plus 8x squared plus 2x plus 5. The quick and dirty way is for each of these x values, you take the exponent you multiply it by the coefficient, the coefficient's the big number to the left, and then you subtract one from the exponent. So for the first one, for this one, we got 3 times 4, which is 12, subtract 1, that gives us 2. So that's 12x squared. For the second one, we got 8x squared. So we're going to multiply 2 times 8, which is, gives us 16, and then we subtract off 1 from 2, which gives us 1. So usually we don't write x to the first, it's just x. So that gives us 16x. 
Then for the third one, we'll do, uh, yeah, x to the 0 is just 1. So 1 times 2 is 2. Subtract 1 is 0. So that just gives us 2. And since this last one is, uh, I guess that would be x. So the, the last coefficient just drops off, basically. So that gives us 12x squared plus 16x plus 2. And also you'll hear about integration. Integration is the opposite of taking a derivative, and that tells you the amount of area under a curve. Okay, so why is calculus and derivatives important? When you get into calculus-based physics, you'll find out position, velocity, and acceleration are all related. So position is just basically how far away two points are. This is usually measured in meters or miles or feet or yards or kilometers, whatever inches, whatever your favorite unit is. Uh, I just made a note here that most graphics in 3D software defaults to one unit per meter. Now, if you're doing something like my earth ball game, then you got to kind of scale that down <laughs> or scale it up to make it where it's a reasonable value. Otherwise, if you get values too small or too big, that'll throw off your the Unity physics engine. So a typical person is about 1.72 meters tall. Now that's probably common knowledge outside of the United States, but here in the U.S. we're accustomed to like people being 5 feet 8 inches tall. So velocity is the first derivative with respect to time of the position. So that basically tells you how fast you're going, distance divided by time. Units are meters per second or miles per hour here in the U.S. And if you ever hear speed, if you want to know what the difference between speed and velocity is, well, velocity uh, is signed. Uh, velocity can either be positive or negative. Like if you're going uh, in a car, in your vehicle, you're going forward, you're going with positive velocity. Um, if you're backing up, then you're going it with negative velocity. Like you're going negative 50 miles per hour. Uh, hopefully you're not going backwards negative that fast. Hopefully you're only going backwards like negative 15 miles per hour or something like that. But speed is the absolute value, or yeah, speed is the absolute value of velocity. So if you're backing up, going ne negative 15 miles per hour, your speed is still going to be 15. So that's the difference between velocity and speed. And acceleration is the second derivative of position or if you have velocity even take the derivative of the velocity with respect to time you end up with distance over time squared units or meters per second squared so that basically tells how fast your speed is increasing or how fast your speed is decreasing a typical example of this is gravity you're going negative uh, 9.8 meters per second squared um, but one thing you always got to count for, even if you put all these values, your velocity and acceleration in a real world example, or even in Unity, uh, you got to account for friction. Because otherwise, like one of Newton's laws is an object in motion stays in motion until it's 
reacted on another object. Uh, well, friction plays a role in this, so an object will eventually stop uh, based on the friction. So here's the graphics or the gravity example right here. In Unity, if you dig into the physics setting, you can change the fit the gravity value here we have it set to the default negative 9.81 um, smaller planets you're going to have a smaller value uh, larger planets you're going to have a bigger value for acceleration there uh, it's a little bit confusing because always hear gravity defined as a force but here in a minute I'll talk about graphic gravity is actually acceleration um, yeah, so in physics, you have your base units, base SI units. Uh, length is a meter, mass is kilogram, time is second. Then there's a lot of other ones, kind of like, uh, I think Kelvin is for temperature. Then you have one for amps and coulombs and all this other crazy stuff that, that we'll never use in a game. Basically, if we stick with length, mass, and time... In Unity will be good. As I kind of inferred a second ago, mass is constant wherever you are in the universe. Um, whatever your mass is in kilograms on Earth, your mass will be the same on the moon or on Jupiter. But if we're talking about weight, I know here in the U.S. we usually talk about our weight and not our mass. I know in a lot of other parts of the world they talk about mass. Or whenever you talk about your weight, then you talk about your mass in kilograms. So 200 pounds on Earth, kind of like my average weight, it's going to equal, if, you're, if, if you want to figure out your weight on a di different planets or a different planetary object, <laughs> such as the moon, basically you take your weight on your current planet, such as Earth, and then you divide by the gravity of Earth and multiply it by the gravity on the planet you're going to. So the gravity on the moon is 1.622 meters per second squared. So we take my weight on Earth, 200. We divide that by 9.81 meters per second squared and multiply that by 1.622 meters per second squared. Then we get... 33.07 pounds on the moon. So I would be 33 pounds on the moon. Um, as I mentioned earlier, keeping your units straight, uh, you'll see here uh, 200 pounds, and then we basically divide by 1 meters per second squared, then multiply by another meters per second squared. That cancels those two out, so you end, still end up with pounds, which is pretty cool. So Newton's second law, here's, here's just some other units that you may or may not be, uh, should be aware of. Definitely force in making games. Force is mass times acceleration, Newton's second law. And actually the unit, standard unit for force is called the Newton. Pretty easy to remember. So a Newton is basically kilograms times acceleration, meters per second squared. There's these hot, if you get into physics, there's these higher levels of unit, like there's a concept called work. So work is force times distance. It's like how much force you have to put on an object 
to move it a certain distance. And the standard unit of work is called the joule or newton meter, newton times meters. Uh, another standard format, standard unit is the kilowatt hour. Then an even higher unit is called power. Uh, so power is the work divided by time. And this is measured in watts, which are joules <coughs> divided by seconds. <coughs> which can also be written in the base units as kilograms times meters divided by second squared. Uh, so yeah, a lot of these things are important in making a physics-based game like pinball. I have an example here in Unity oops, where we get the rigid body. So a rigid body in Unity is actually what gives it this physics properties. And so we add a force vector 3 at a certain position, say 1,000 or 1,000 to 1,200 units. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not an expert in all these physics settings. There's something called force mode equals impulse. There's different types of forces you can apply to an object. I'm not getting into that. That's a topic. Talk for a different day. <clears throat> and here's some useless stuff for game dev. <clears throat> these are things that I learned in math class that I've never really used in uh, making a game, but I kind of made a guess how these could be used. Surface area, I've never used it. I guess if you're doing like a game where you got to cover up, like Super Mario Sunshine, you got to cover up a certain amount of an object, of a polygon or something. So you need to cover up 70% of an object. Surface area may be useful in that. Uh, circumference, I really haven't used circumference uh, aside from just like doing simple circles. I guess that would be important in a game like Katamari Damashi where... Uh, the size of your object, your sphere, your circle, depends on whether you win or lose. So in that case, circumference is very important. Never used, really used logarithms. Have never used the quadratic formula in a game. Really never used quadratic formula anywhere. I, I actually haven't memorized. Negative B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4AC all over 2A. It's the way to find the two roots of a of a <coughs> function, uh, a squared function. <clears throat> uh, two's complement, never used it, but I know it's working behind the scenes uh, in every program when you're doing subtraction. Imaginary numbers, never used them. Uh, I think, yeah, I guess I'll have to research this. I don't know what the application of imaginary number is. Imaginary number is a square root of one, which isn't supposed to exist. Because I don't think I mentioned earlier, but uh, the reason why we don't have to worry about converting uh, negative distances, like if you're moving to the left in a certain number of units, the reason why we don't have to worry about converting that to a positive number is because any number times itself, whether it be positive or negative, when you square that number, it will always be positive. So say you have 25. You take the square root of that. Well, most people will tell you the square root of 25 is 5, but it's actually 5 and negative 5 because negative 5 times negative 5 is 25. So it actually has two roots. <clears throat> but there's no square root of a negative number. So there's this concept of imaginary numbers. Never used it in a game. Never used it in real life. 
Uh, and there's other trigonometry functions <clears throat> called secant, cosecant, and cotangent. I uh, couldn't tell you off the top of my head what they do. It's all documented online if you're interested in those. Never used them for making a game. Never used them in real life. I know also like other number formats such as octal. I know octal is used in a few places, but I've never used it. <clears throat> so yeah, <clears throat> that that's the end of my talk. I'm about out of my voice is about out, so that's a good stopping point right there. Uh, yeah, it doesn't look like anybody else joined us this month, but uh, yeah. It was kind of a nerdy, in-depth talk this month, so I can understand. And also the time change and everything. I think Dylan said he's supposed to be uh, at the kickoff. He may be next month. I know he has another talk in mind, so I'm interested in hearing uh, more from him. Let's see here. So, yeah, as always, go out and check out our website, www.noxgamedesign.org. I actually went out there and I put, like, all the past episodes on the website. So, you, there's... Oh, I also wanted to mention, like, I have a really old uh, blog here, my old WordPress blog. And I got some of these math concepts, like doing a cross product between two vectors. Uh, I have this written like in 12 different languages. So C-sharp, C, Forth, Fortran, Java, JavaScript. I'll put links to all this. Lisp, like even these weird functional languages. Lua, Lua, where the indexes start with one sometimes. Objective-C, Perl, PHP, Python, Ruby, Scala, Scheme, Smalltalk. TCL, and then I give the output. But yeah, I also have like quadratic formula in multiple languages. So I just went through here and like took these common programming problems. I think I did this in 2011, sometime around then. Took these common math problems and implemented some. Yeah, here's like a number guessing game. I kind of talked about that last month. Um,. Yeah, it seems like there's uh, some other ones that I did as well. I think they're all listed maybe here on the site. Yeah, here we go. So Fibonacci sequence in 12 languages, number guessing game in 11 languages, Caesar cipher. So there's a little bit of like base cryptography in 12 languages, cross product and quadratic formula. So yeah, check that out if, you're, if you just need some basic programming examples in a lot of different languages. So yeah, check out noxgamedesign.org. And over here on the right side, I have all the meeting videos going back to February 2017. That's when we started doing the online meetings. Um, but yeah, typically we have a different topic that we covered every month. Some topics are more in-depth, like Unity UI Techs, Unreal Engine Tips, uh, game maker tips, more technical, more about tools, Inkscape and Sprider, Gudo Engine, RPG Maker. But then we have some more of these like softer talks, more like concept talks, kind of like human computer interaction, artificial intelligence. Even though that one did have some technical aspects to it, it didn't actually go into like a specific tool. So we're trying to rotate between these like tool engine topics and these general game development topics. So I have all those listed right there. Um, you can also find like information about 
our latest meetings and you can sign up for the mailing list right here just enter your email address and hit subscribe and you can find links to the audio podcast we're on a whole bunch of different places uh we're on itunes uh we're on google play stitcher overcast pocket cast player fm and podcast addict now i've never heard of some of these but somehow they suck in our art our RSS feed and we get listed on those sites as well and always remember to check out the videos on iTunes as well so yeah uh, that's gonna wrap it up for March 2019 uh, we'll plan on doing it again next month and uh, yeah be sure to check out Knox Game Design and all our developers in the Knoxville area so uh, until next time thanks everyone for listening and watching